0: Welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks 13 questions of Colgate University community members. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Associate Professor of Anthropology, Santiago Juarez, to the studio. Juarez studies the rise of urbanism during the pre-classic period, between 250 B.C. and 200 A.D. at the recently discovered site of Noku in Chiapas, Mexico. Juarez utilizes a multi-scalular analysis of pre-classic households, community, and landscape to reconstruct the role of commoners during the incipit phase of urban development in the Maya region. Juarez utilizes the latest methods in geographic information systems to spatially analyze landscape features, material culture, and chemical signatures. His methods combine satellite imagery and reflection radiometer data from online geographic databases with excavation data to reveal the nuances of spatial patterns that occur within and outside of households. He also incorporates techniques in microanalysis, including coupled plasma atomic emission spectrometry of soils from outdoor activity spaces to better understand behaviors that are beyond the scope of traditional excavation. And you can now see Professor Juarez at work in the jungles of Mexico, lending his expertise to the newly released Disney Plus program Lost Cities Revealed with Albert Lin in their exploration of the Mayan Pyramid city of Palenque. And uh, that is the first episode of the new series. Uh, Juarez earned his bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. from Northwestern University. Santiago, welcome to 13. Thank you so much for inviting
1: me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, I'm so glad you're here, and this is such a cool topic to talk about, <laughs> so I'm very excited. Um, let's start a little bit just uh, with your background and how you got interested in studying um, the Maya civilization.
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, we have to go way back Yeah. Then. <laughs> I mean, I think my interest started with my father. Um, I think there was a point where I said I was interested in archaeologists because, you know, I grew up back in the day when we were still watching cable TV, had to deal with what was available at the time. There was no streaming. And one of the most uh, common things you would see in the History Channel and Discovery were archaeology shows. So they were all about looking into the pyramids, especially in the Egypt, and old world. And I think at some point I told my dad, God, I must have been 10 at the time. I told him I wanted to be an archaeologist, but I was disappointed that, like, everything had been found. So that, you know, 10-year-old's understanding of the world was, like, all the cool stuff's already been found. And you know, I was like, oh, are you going to work in Mexico? And I said, like, oh, there's nothing in Mexico. Like, I want to work in Egypt. and you know, I want to work uh, or somewhere maybe in Mesopotamia where there's really cool stuff. And I think that just really rubbed them the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward a year later, I just don't – I mean – Looking back at this, it was insane. So he pulls me out of school during the winter for about a month, and he goes to the principal and says, okay, I want my son to understand uh, his background, his culture. So I'm going to take him you know, for the entire month of January. Well, yeah, it was January, and just drive him through all of Mexico. So we get in our car. Oh, wow. <laughs> like I said, I didn't know this was insane at the time. And where were you living at the time? Chicago. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we drove from Chicago. And basically did a world tour of archaeological sites all across Mexico for three to four weeks. And, yeah, I was getting to see some of my uh, distant family there as yeah. well. Like I had no idea that <laughs> how large my family was until he really drives me through this. And, uh, yeah, we go to Teotihuacan. Um, we go to the, Mexica, uh, the Anthropology Museum in Mexico City. Uh, gosh, I'm already forgetting all the sites we visited through. Many I didn't know by name. So we're going through grooves to see El Tahin, um, and then a, b- a collection of other uh, classic period sites, um, just as many as we could see and fit in a single trip. Hmm. And he's, you know, makes it very clear, you know, when we're in Teotihuacan, these are your ancestors. This is where you come really from. Neat. This is like the the civil, you know what your ancestors accomplished in the ancient past. So well, at that point, I was hooked. Wow, that's really <laughs> neat. So, uh, tell me a little bit about
0: your your thesis when you were working <laughs> on your doctorate.
1: Oh, gosh. That also just feels like a lot of good, happy circumstances coming together, you know, like a perfect storm of events. Um, So I got into graduate school at Northwestern at the time when my PI, Cynthia Robin, who's still there at Northwestern, uh, was wrapping up one of her major research projects in Belize. I would worked with her before as an undergrad, and I thought, well, you know, that's going to be my future classic period, uh, my archaeology. And um, he was wrapping it up, so there really weren't that many options. He says, "You know what? I know you're looking for a new project. I'm willing to extend mine if you want, just for you. You know, you could have another year, but you're gonna have a deadline. You know, it's gonna be pretty strict, and you have to get it done very quickly." I also have a colleague who's looking for new archaeological sites somewhere in Chiapas, and he's really interested in having people help him out. I said, "All right." Let me, you know, I had also known her colleague, Joel Palka, from a previous undergrad course. I took an epigraphy, my epigraphy. I said, like, all right, yeah, I like Joel, so let's go see what he's got. And <laughs> um, I had no idea what I was in, in, you know, prepared for because I was used to working in the tropics, but most of these areas have already been developed. There's towns and villages. There's infrastructure. I've gone into work in the rainforest, but, you know, it's only a few steps away from a main road. So you're always, you know, even though you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, there's always uh, infrastructure to contact. You never feel like you're that isolated. Help is near. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then yeah, I still remember that first uh, truck ride with Joel. It took about four hours from the closest city um, to the actual research site, and most of it was just gravel roads. Some of it not even gravel, just dirt. And We're barely making it through because it's the end of the rating season, some of the roads have been washed away. And I think at some point we actually have to cross a stream uh, by our truck just to get to the side. I'm like, where the hell are we? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, as you know, as impressed as I was, I was seeing more and more, um, you know, these indigenous Maya communities. We're driving through them. The forest is getting thicker and larger and older. And I'm getting more like, wow, this is really cool. And by the time we get to, uh, well, the region Metsavok, Metzavok. Um, that's the location where Noku is found. Um the rainforest just looks primordial it is just you know you cross this bridge and you see these giant sabre trees um you know, endless rainforests it's like oh wow this is real rainforest like i thought i worked in the tropics and i was like no i didn't <laughs> i was working in forests that may have been regrown um you know over the last 50 70 years this was stuff that had not been touched ancient yes
0: yes yes so tell us about noku itself like it how big was it? What was the, the, the give us the kind of I guess elementary school uh, <laughs> primer here?
1: Okay, so I always think in metrics. <laughs> Sorry, when I go in <laughs> archaeology, so you know the the simple numbers. Noku is about 250 hectares in, 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 in size. So that's probably a little over the footprint of uh, Central Park in New York. Okay, so we're talking about a reasonable size city, you know, small or a uh, proto urban city. And uh, we so far, we've identified about 300 different structures uh, from the LIDAR map alone. Um, yeah, and going back to my dissertation, uh, we were the first to really look into the space um, in any significant way. The, the site didn't have a name. Wow. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, <laughs> yeah, you're making me go way back here, 15 years <laughs> ago. Uh, yeah, I go into the space, the, the local Lacanon Maya, and we could talk about them a little later. Yeah. Um, were telling me, oh, there's these weird square-shaped hills in our agricultural fields. Would you like to check them out? We think they're what you're looking for. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I definitely want to see what this small rural farming village would look like. And again, I'm not thinking urban yet. I'm mm. thinking small like, habitations here. And what they show me is just vast. You know, and It wasn't just the buildings were large. Um, much larger than I was expecting them to be. Um, But the flat areas surrounding them just look like these giant endless football fields of artificially flat space. I mean, you're going through a karstic environment, which means limestone, it's porous, really jagged. And all of a sudden, you just have like a soccer field um, just kind of just totally flattened out. Hmm. And in my mind, it's like, this is not natural. You know, I was very skeptical of my own instincts was like, this can't be, you know, this has to be artificial. But then it just felt too large a scale for something that had not been recorded or found before.
0: Wow. So I guess what kind of work did you do at the site? Tell me about how you oh. did your investigation. Oh,
1: gosh. I mean, <laughs> I love how your intro just like goes like, oh, wow, I remember doing all this. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's very incremental. Yeah, sure. I mean, the first year that I was there, that first visit was just a matter of like, okay, I see these – Large collection of eight structures here. Let me map them out with a tape and compass. I mean, it was that low tech. I was like, all right, I want to come back with some data so I could, you know, ask for some grants and continue mapping this. So it starts very low tech of just mapping the first few structures. And then at that point, I dive into larger survey, which involves uh, laser theodolite. Um, which is a kind of a uh, the same mapping system that you see uh, construction workers use on the side of the road. So okay. If you ever see that thing on a tripod yes. and then someone standing with this prism, that's what they're doing—they're mapping away. Okay. Um, and my f- after my second year, it just feels like oh wow, we just keep discovering more and more and more. So by the end of that season, I think I charted out about thirty or forty new structures, and it just kept going. And then I was also conscious of how artificial this place space looks. I also kept making sure to map the spaces in between the buildings. And when I got back to my GIS uh, process, ArcGIS, I could see like, no, the, what my instincts are right. These places are flat, they're artificial, they have corners, I mean, they're rectangular in shape. So I knew I was onto something at that point. And then I move on to the excavation phase somewhere around my fourth or fifth year, um, including some of the soil chemistry and understanding like, all right, how are people using these spaces. And you know, again the, the the general trend is that things get getting larger. Like nothing is small here. Even individual households. Um, you're talking of families are probably somewhere at least a hundred people, a hundred individuals. So wow. per per single household. Whoa. Well, household think about it as a you know, compound, not sure. a single building. Okay. But multiple buildings kinda of tied in together, sharing a space and everyone just kinda of gathering in a center to do everything you know: cook, uh, chat, make tools, have celebrations, or just hang out.
0: So, uh, about how many people do you think lived there? I guess at its height.
1: Oh gosh! So there—that's the controversial number. Mm. <laughs> Honestly, if you, there was a long conversation that was not included in the documentary. Yeah, where I was trying to break down how clueless we actually are about the pre-classic. Oh. Um, So in my archaeology, we tend to see a single building, call that, you know, if it's a domestic residence, we'll multiply that by five to get a very generic population estimate. However, that estimate is based on ethnographic data collected somewhere around the 60s or 70s. So the two are not comparable in any way. Mm -hmm. So, and this has been debated for like the last 20 years. Like, okay, what kind of population estimates can we apply to further, further back in time? And essentially, we just kind of throw our hands up in the air. So, like, we really don't understand how these people lived. So, again, you, uh, net, the the people at National Geographic were asking me for an estimate, and I said, like, ah. <laughs> I'll give you anywhere between two to five thousand people, and that's a frustratingly vague number for the city proper. Sure, and it just depends on what they're doing. Are these uh, these you know giant urban spaces just built for people to live year round? Or are they also including people that are visiting to uh, conduct uh, pilgrimage ceremonies in the, the broader valley. So if you're doing that, then those numbers kind of increase at any given time, mm. depending on the year. Interesting. Um, uh, yeah, my advisor, Joe Palka, um, wrote a book about pilgrimages in the region. And he talks about this being a common thing, that they're there, yes, to live, to conduct their daily lives. But there's also these very ceremonially significant mountains all across. So people would have been doing pilgrimages uh, throughout the year. Wow. So, you know, it's almost like just the best guesstimate at this point. Interesting. Uh, And what is the context,
0: I guess, of Noku within the greater Maya empire? Like, is it – what
1: role did it play? Ah, Okay. So, oof, I got to step way back here. (laughs) (laughs) So when people hear the the word Maya, I think that 90% of the literature and even the museum stuff and reconstructed tourist sites date to the classic period. So that's 250 to 900 AD. Um, This is the era of the kings, or the Kulahal. So they're creating the the impressive artworks, the hieroglyphs, the temples that are just covered with uh, artworks and text works. So they're the ones who kind of get most of the attention. So I work in a pre-classic that was, you, you know, 30 years ago was thought as just a evolutionary precursor to the classic. And now, over the last 30 years, we see, no, it's a civilization in its own right. Many things are very similar, uh, but they're very distinct also as well. Because mm-hmm. we're also looking at a civilization that emerged without kingship. So, you know, we're still trying to understand what that uh, society looked like. They're more communalistic. Um, They seem to be more focused on the group identity versus, you know, the power of a single authority. And they're very religious. Hmm. So we're looking... Pre-classic essentially brings us into the transition from nomadism to full-time sedentism. And I think what's really nuts about this uh, time period, it's not a gradual transition. You go from... N- uh, nomadic lifestyles to full-on urbanism within just a matter of a few generations. So they're, they're just, they really are rewriting the book in terms of how we understand human evolution. Yeah, I, w- I was wondering how that plays into our overall
0: understanding of, uh, you know, the the beginnings of society as we know it, right? So how, how does this play, or how does this change our understanding of that?
1: Everything. It's beautifully complicated <laughs> and ugly. <laughs> and that's what I get excited about. I was like, yeah. oh, I really don't understand this. Yay. <laughs> Here's a career. Yeah. <laughs> so the Maya region first dabbles into agriculture about 7,000 B.C. They haven't settled down full time. Okay. You know, they're still nomadic, heavily nomadic, uh, heavily mobile. Um, but they're starting to experiment with corn, squash, and beans for the first time. So 5,000 years later, you know, we're looking at maybe around 2,000 B.C., they start creating um, communal spaces to gather. They're not creating households. They're not settling down. They're creating these kind of shared spaces. And then by 1,000 B.C., they're creating monuments for the first time, and massive monuments. These are not small things. Uh, most of this is the work of Takeshi Nomura, who actually came to Colgate uh, a few years ago to present his work, and we're just all, you know, our minds were blown. Because he's got, you know, gigantic earthen platforms that measure about a kilometer in length and about a half a kilometer wide with subsidiary temples all across, all, all, you know, on top of it, in these very geometric patterns. So they are creating monuments before they even think about creating a first permanent household. Hmm. So again, yeah, they are just... Rewriting how we what, think.
0: What were these monuments too? We don't really know.
1: It just seems like, well, there does seem a clear association with the world. You know, they are cardinally oriented. They seem to be divvying out north, south, east, and west, and then northeast and northwest, and southeast and southwest. So they're almost like these um, geometric calendars on the ground in monumental form. And they're creating these complex roadways to connect multiple systems together, like multiple uh, monuments. And again, they're doing this before they even think about settling down for a year. So, wow, that's really cool. So yeah, and then, so we're at 1000 BC with monumental structures already there. I don't think houses, the idea of a like, permanent house becomes common somewhere around 400, 300 BC. So several hundred years later. So mm. they're almost reversing the typical trajectory that we see somewhere in, like in Mesopotamia. Well, yeah, in Mesopotamia, you see people settling down. They start investing in agriculture, and then you get more complex towns and cities from there forward. You know, the Maya just completely say, no, 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 we're going to follow a totally different trajectory. And, again, I think this is where the exciting part happens, where we're trying to understand, okay, what is driving this? How does this work? Interesting. And, and tell me about Palenque. <laughs> oh, Palenque. So here's, yeah, the interesting juxtaposition between Palenque and Noku. So during the pre classic, we're starting the clock say around 400 BC. Um, Palenque was a very small kind of uh, outlier town. Hmm. They did you know, have a population, but they're fairly tiny. And then by, you know, for most of the classic period, they're kind of a struggling community. Then 700 B.C., uh, I'm sorry, 700 A.D., we get to the point where we see the rise of Lord Pakal, which is well represented in the documentary. And, you know, we see the emergence of a figure who's very grandiose in the standing, very bombastic. And you can see that through the hieroglyphs. I mean, we're talking about someone who says, I'm going to create this new order. And I'm going to make Palenque you know, be the new center of the world. And, you know, they follow through on that promise. So most of what you see in Palenque today is really a result of Lord Pakal. So this beautiful palace structure, the, the temple complexes all across this, this uh, you know, this short mountain are a result of his work.
0: And if I was looking at the map of Mexico, where, where would Palenque be located if you kind of zeroed in on it?
1: So you're fairly south in Mexico, um, just northwest oh, – I'm sorry, um, northeast of Guatemala. Okay. And uh, – so how, how did
0: that, um, I guess, what was the importance of that city? I guess, what um, do we know the importance of that city?
1: Well, at the classic period, uh, there are lots of cities that, you know, you can almost look at them as constellations. There's multiple star points that are the centers of urbanization, kingly worship, um, artistic development and technological innovation. There's multiple ones. There's dozens. So, in many ways, Palenque is just one of many important figures. But historically, the reason Palenque sticks out is because it's fairly new to the archaeological literature. I mean, it's, again, the the rainforest is fairly dense in Chiapas. So, I think somewhere around the, uh, oh gosh, when was it first discovered? I mean, it was discovered about 100 years ago. Um, But you don't see any significant investment to the archaeology about the 40s and 50s. And archaeologists loved it at that point because they felt like, oh, we're really into the heart of the rainforest. Uh, uh, you have, you know, these, these original experts who go there and kind of to get away. Uh, they actually create these uh, conferences, uh, Mesa Redonda, Palenque, to just talk about my archaeology in the future. But again, they love going there because it just feels so isolated. Hmm. That is no longer the case. Uh, you know, Palenque has been well-published. And the city around it developed, um, as a result, through the tourist industry that Palenque brought. Interesting. So historically, I think Palenque sticks out just because it was fairly new, but then you had multiple archaeologists working there, publishing on these beautiful artworks and hieroglyphs, and showing these you know incredible images of a palace coming out of the rainforest. What struck me um, watching
0: the Lost Cities program was uh, how you, you were conducting this research. And, and it was interesting in that, you know, I imagine when it was first discovered, you were, you know, it was the tape measure era and <laughs> the compass era, like yeah. you were saying. But, you know, in in the show, all of a sudden it's like, well, let's throw a drone up. Let's use LiDAR. Like, tell us about how that technology has changed archaeology and in particular um,
1: your work your work in the region. Yeah, so LiDAR's been a game-changer in archaeology so all across the board. So LiDAR isn't that new. Um, I don't know, Do you want me to describe yeah, how LiDAR yeah, works? Yeah, yeah, please do. So LiDAR is just a laser pulse technology and just works, works off of shooting a laser and reflecting off a surface. And LiDAR is able to do that at a million pulses per minute. So the way LiDAR works is it scans everything. So anything that has a reflective surface just comes back to its detector, and then you get that feedback. So what you get are these point clouds that are made out of millions, maybe even billions of points of data, and just record everything. So what you do with that information is that you could process it to delete things you don't want. So I think LIDAR sometimes gets misrepresented as penetrating through the rainforest. And it's like, no, it's actually scanning the rainforest. Mm. You're scanning the trees, bushes, and all the leaves. Then you can take those out? Exactly, exactly. And you actually have uh, dedicated proprietary programs that are able to do that automatically. They'll say, like, okay, what is the lowest point on this map? And we're just going to connect the dots here to create a nice, even surface. Hmm. So that's how that works. That's really neat. Yeah, And
0: how does that, like, uh, I mean... Did that reveal when you started using that technology? Did that start revealing oh, things you hadn't even <laughs> thought about before?
1: So as I said, you know, I knew Noku was big. So I think around was 2016 where we finally got a full map of what this thing would look like. And by the time you remove all the the vegetation, you get a ground map. Depending on the the, res, uh, the resolution, could be as accurate as one point every centimeter across the surface to maybe one point every meter. So that's wow. one point every three feet. Yeah. So beautifully accurate map more so than I could in a lifetime of survey mapping. Yeah, that's wild. So yeah, and what you see are all these subtle but massive features. You know, there were things that I had walked across and missed. I mean, when you're in a rainforest and you see nothing, you know, <laughs> I think that getting documentary shows you What to expect is just a wall of plants. (laughs) So you're just kind of carving your way through and doing your best to map changes in elevation. But You got to see, like, no, I was standing on a platform the size of two football fields stacked end to end. And you can't see that subtle change um, until you see it in LiDAR. And then, more importantly, you also see new structures. I mean, we know it kept expanding out, so now you see the full extent.
0: And do you still do the traditional, like, shovel and pick
1: and, like, oh, you know, yes. you're br-
0: brushing away uh, stuff with a, oh, with a little uh, broom or something? You know?
1: I still do traditional survey. So the one thing, beautiful thing about LIDAR mapping is it gives you this comprehensive map. But you can't – I mean, you could do a lot of analyses with it, but it can't trick you here and there. So sometimes it will create some artifacts because it is interpreted data uh, from software. So it could – at times, create false positives, and then also erase some smaller structures. So you always have to go on the ground to verify it, and you go map. But we did it this uh, two years. I'm oh, sorry, this last summer with a set of Colgate students uh, oh, wow. to confirm um, either the existence of some mounds and then find new things that were not on the on the lidar. Oh, what would you find? Oh, they. I think they recorded about 27 new structures. So, oh, that's so and cool. I think only about. Two-thirds of those were visible in the LIDAR, so they found structures that were not visible. You know why? Because, again, if the forest is dense enough, it's going to cover the ground. Hmm. So varying levels of resolution depending on the rainforest. Do you think
0: we've discovered everything there
1: in that area? So I think I'm comfortable saying we understand the extent of Noku, but I think there's plenty more to be found. Okay. So, yeah.
0: Right. And, you know, one of the things that you look at is uh, life of common people Mm -hmm. at that time. So what would life
1: be like for someone living there? Oh, gosh, really good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, like uh, I always use the word commoner to try to communicate what's going on. I don't think we have distinct classes at that point. Hmm. There will be in the classic period. You will see commoners at Leeds and then, you know, the royalty kind of ordering people around to – Give them instructions on what to do and how to worship, and then people at the bottom end of that scale. I don't think that's the case in a pre classic. Hmm. Like they are more of a confederacy of communities, more so than this kind of hierarchical society with kingship. That's interesting. So, what are they doing? Um, they're you know, connected with large families. Again, some of these families are probably at least 100 people large. Um, they are conducting ceremonies on a regular basis because their houses are also designed um, according to cardinal directions and ceremonially significant. So they're probably welcoming neighbors. Um, they're making tools. They're making food outside. It seems like a very, um, you know, I guess personally it does seem like a very pleasant mode of life.
0: What um- – I guess what was uh, the level of technology at that time, or um, even infrastructure? Can you talk uh, a little bit about like um, the landscape and you know the buildings and any any other kind of infrastructure?
1: So they're terraforming this environment, they're reshaping it, but in a way that's ceremoni- ceremonially significant. So they're recarving these hilltops and mountain tops into geometric shapes. Um, to make these kind of sacred map uh, alignments. So really the cityscape is really more of a sacred cityscape. So there's a lot of environmental engineering here. They're rerouting rivers to kind of go through the city in a very geometric pattern and also to use it as an access way, um, oh. to, Yeah, as a way to move the canoes through the, the entire region. So yeah, they're kind of creating highways out of the rivers. Um, but in terms of technology, there's still stone tool technology. Okay. And one of the things that we've learned, um, I think I'm quoting Bill Fash here, a you know, big Maya archaeologist, who says um, you know, they're not trying to make things more efficient by design. In the Maya world, your work, your labor can be seen as an offering to the broader world. So, by making it easier, you're actually lessening your offering. Uh-huh. So, almost all of this is done by hand. So, the reshaping, the terraforming, the rerouting of rivers, the shaving off of mountaintops, they're doing this with stone tools, uh, you know, stone axe at the, the end of a wooden stake, and baskets, you know, they're carrying basket loads, and that's the point. It's hard labor, um, but... You know, I think I'm uh, quoting the work of John Monaghan It says this is part of the sacred covenant with the Earth. Hmm. Your labor that you're putting into it, you're asking for something.
0: Wow. Have you done any work with uh, Anthony Avini here, who I know who's done a lot uh, of uh, yeah. ancient uh, <laughs> astronomy type stuff? Yes, <laughs> no,
1: we've had some great conversations, especially in the whole Vis lab. And we've been able to, now that we have the LiDAR data, to put that up on the, uh, the, the planetarium. And we could see that some interesting uh, relationships are happening with the mountains. So... One of the things I found in my dissertation is that the buildings are making alignments. They're all lining up perfectly to each other, but what are they aligning to? Um, And in my dissertation, I do find some mountains are a key part of this alignment, but it seems more complex than that. And you know, working with Tony, you could say like, oh, there are some more complex celestial events also going on. So they're modifying the landscape, again, in a very sacred pattern, but they're also integrating the sky. So that work is ongoing. That's kind of the future, the next steps of this research. Are they aligning to the Milky Way in specific ways? Are they aligning to other uh, you know, astral alignments like the Pleiades or the movement of Venus? So those are things we're still working through. One of the beautiful things about the Hotong Viz lab is that they're able to adjust for the difference in time. So you know, I have some basic, you know, very basic tools on how to track the sun in my software, uh, but they're able to track the stars and uh, what they would have looked like in 800 B.C.
0: Yeah, that's really neat. Yeah. Um, do you have any plans for uh, additional expeditions? or, or, oh, or yes, uh, yeah. always. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, I mean, one of the beautiful and frustrating things about Nuku is that, again, I'm one of the first people to work there and still really the only uh, academic working in that site alone. Um, Joel Paco is also there, and Josue Lozada are also working in the region. They're also working in the valley, but they have their own sites. So it does feel like this monumental task of how do you approach a city of this size? So I'm always looking for the next project, how to do more excavations, how to do some more uh, survey work to figure out, all right, how many buildings are really here and what do they really look like? And every time I go there, we seem to find something new, Hmm. a new pattern. So I think the next big project is trying to figure out, when did this city first emerge? So if we're looking at the late pre-classic, the 250 B.C. to 200 A.D., I think that's its peak period. Hmm. I want to see when the city first emerged. And I think that's going to go back to 800 B.C., at the point where people are still semi-nomadic and still thinking about residential life for the first time. And I'm really interested in looking at that transition.
0: So how how do you find that? How do how do you figure that out?
1: Oh, so in our last excavations, um, what the Maya do, and, then you know, beautiful for archaeologists, is that every time they feel like there's this new transition period, they'll build on top of their old structure. Nah. they create a new facade. It's like New York City. There you go. <laughs> so imagine doing that every 30 years. <laughs> so just tearing down your house, building a new one because, you know, maybe – there was a new marriage or someone passed away, like a good um, like a, you know, a leading figure in your family. So you need to create a new order. So you build right on top of that. So they're kind of like building in this kind of layered pattern. So when I do an excavation, you know, the first few layers are the most recent. So that's the late Preclassic, classic And we get further and further down. You get maybe about four or five feet down. You start seeing, oh, there's a, you know, so the, these layers continue and they're getting older. And so far, the C-14 dates, we're getting dates uh, that range between 800 BC to about 1,000 BC. You say C-14 is carbon dating? Yes, carbon dating, yes. So we have dates from 800 BC and 1,000 BC. Wow. So it's getting older, but because you're only seeing um, little uh, excavations uh, through the the surface, you don't really know what the the bottom layers are telling you. You can just see, like, okay, yes, there's a floor here, there's some artifacts, I have no idea what the buildings look like until you keep expanding out.
0: Is there anything that you've discovered uh, in your work that was that you are prize or that was the most um, <laughs> the, or if not prized, the most telling or the
1: most informative? Uh, well, finding a city wasn't too shabby.. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that was my dissertation work, the map. You know, I, by the time I got to 2014, I had about 100 plus structures mapped in. And some excavations on top of this. And, um, yeah, I was able to show that, yeah, one, we have a proto-urban society. Um, It's in a location where we didn't expect it. You know, it's there kind of in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, I think that's the point, that pre-classic civilization and classic period civilizations are distinct and separate. And, you know, what we're seeing, I think, um, across the board in literature is that All these classic period cities have – oh, sorry. All the classic period, the famous ones like Palenque, Tikal, Copan, all have pre-classic precursors, but they're all tiny. Mm. So the large pre-classic cities are located somewhere else, and they're harder to get to. Um, And that, I think, is pretty much universal across the board. Yeah, you're finding these new pre-classic environments – these new agricultural societies, and new cities all across Mexico and Guatemala, just not in locations that we were looking. Hmm. So Noku is one of many new discoveries, and I think many more to come. So I think this probably crosses over to sociology, but I'm curious about
0: the, the current residents, the no. people that live there, and is there some kind of shared history? Like, do, Have they been able to help, and uh, what, what have you. they told you about the
1: region? All right, so, wow, this gets complicated. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Joe Palka actually wrote a whole book about this. Um, so the people who live there today are the Lacanon Maya, um, and uh, the, li- the, the closest uh, village is Puerto Velo Mezaboc. So the Lacanon Maya are uh, a society that, were very, uh, that are very well integrated into the rainforest and use that as part of their cultural tradition. The protection of the rainforest, living in the rainforest, because historically the rainforest has served as a protective environment to them. Uh, if you go back to the 1800s, um, they use the rainforest to evade their enemies, especially the the state. You know, as they're avoiding conquest. Um, sometimes they're referred to as the unconquered Maya. Hmm. They're using like the density of the rainforest to their advantage. Sure. it's a rough environment, especially if you're not used to it. It's full of bugs, snakes, and different hazards. So they know how to use that to their advantage. So it's a really big part of their identity. And um, the reason we're able to be there and the reason everything is so pristine and well-protected is due to the protection of the Lacanon Maya. Um, So how do they see the archaeological sites? Uh, So... (laughs) It's a, there's a big story here. Yeah. I mean, Joel Palca is the first person to open up negotiations with the Lacandon to even allow the archaeological work. Okay. So in Mexico, they don't have reservation lands, but there's this kind of a helo system where some indigenous communities are given working rights over the land that they occupy. And many years ago, the government came to an agreement with the Lacandon that if you protect the rainforest, you know, this is the land you could use. Um, you're still going to work with the forestry department as uh, you know, uh, you know, part of Mexico City, um, but you know, this is kind of the agreement. that you know, These are, you know, in many ways, your lands. Mm-hmm. So the only way we're able to work there is through the approval of the Lacanone. So Joe Palca essentially comes in with a, a question of, oh, I heard there were archaeological sites um, in these regions. But, you know, I have no plans here. Uh, I'm not really asking anything. Could you use my expertise? You know, could you use the expertise of an archaeologist to help understand some of these sites? And rightly so, the Lock and Don are very skeptical. And they're like, okay, you know, we have some questions for you, but we're going to try this out. And over a period of about three or four years, they just give them these small artifacts and, you uh, items to test and to date and they're trying to see if he's going to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to make sure that he's just not a person taking materials and then never coming back and selling them on the black market or whatever. Yeah. So he comes back repeatedly over a four year period somewhere around there, the early 2000s. I think it was uh, 2005 that he starts this. And by the time I meet him in 2010 he's already gotten the approval of Lockheed him saying saying like okay we have a relationship here. It seems like you're willing to follow through on your word. Let's show you everything that we got. <laughs> so by the time, uh, the, in 2010, they show him a mountain that's completely been modified, which appears in the, the documentary. Yep. This is Chakakdun, the Red Mountain. And they show him these massive terraces, large temple complexes that are working away from the base of the mountain all the way to the top. So he's good. <laughs> so he got what he wanted. <laughs> and then I come in. It's like, oh, you're going to have that, that interest. And then, again, that's where they take me to the agricultural field. It's like, oh, we have these weird square-shaped uh, hills. What do you think they are? And there, you know, that's where I have my dissertation. So essentially the way we're involved is they want to know what these materials are. They have their own ancestry. They know where their ancestors are buried. But – They didn't really settle into this region until about 100 or 150 years ago. Okay. um, Because, well, they've been on a run from the Spanish. They've been on a run from the Mexican government. You know, they're always trying to resist uh, subjugation. Um, And they were only really forced to become a full-time sedentary society because the rainforest kept shrinking around Mm -hmm. them. So the ability to use the rainforest to hide as a kind of tactical weapon – Really died over time just due to deforestation. Hmm. So they knew these things were ancient. They just didn't feel a ancestral connection to them. At the same time, they also refer to them as the remains of the gods. So you know they've uh, even though uh, most of them have evangelized, um, they're you know solidly Christian. They still refer to what I work in as the house of the gods. And you know, these were built by, you know, very powerful people. So they wanted to know more about them. They want to know how old they were, how many people were there. You know, basically the same kind of questions I had. Sure. Yeah. So it's like, all right, this is gonna be a great relationship, but I always have to make sure to inform the local community leadership of what I'm doing. And one of the things that they require of me is to use to prioritize that community in terms of labor. So if I need field hands, if I need people to assist me with the archaeological work or even the lab work, I'm responsible for training them and getting them up to speed and then hiring them first to do this work. So, yeah, it's multi-purpose, you know. One, yeah, economic, obviously they could use the money. uh, But secondarily, it's a way to keep tabs on us to make sure we're not doing anything inappropriate. They're, you know, maintaining respect for the site and the the region and the environment Hmm. So there's always eyes on us at all times. But at this point it doesn't feel like we're being watched. It feels more like a genuine collaboration. Nice. And in many ways I've had to change my research agenda based on their needs. So if they have a request, I'm like, well, I'm a guest here, so yeah. yes, of course. I will, you know, alter my original plans to you know fit what you need. That's and we'll really find neat. compromises here and there.
0: Sure. Um are there any leads or uh, areas that you're looking to explore or you think there may be undiscovered, um, you know, either temples or pyramids or, or anything? Is there anything that
1: you're kind <laughs> of on the hunt for? <laughs> um, in terms of exploration, I think I want to understand what the natural landscape is, you know, what role the natural landscape is playing here. Um, you know, I see lots of buildings creating different alignments to the northeast and northwest, so right now, a lot of my research is trying to track down, like, all right, what about that mountain peak that, you know, is often a distance is important to this site? And that requires a lot of preparation, a lot of hiking, <laughs> and, you know, and some mapping out to figure out how to best get there. Because you're going across. you know, I'm not a mountain climber, but then I've kind of had to figure it out <laughs> <laughs> uh, to get to an important spot. Um, so that's been one of the focal points of my upcoming research. But I'm also less interested in discovering new sites because I want to focus on what I have now. Gotcha. Because I want to focus on the origins of this community and seeing how far back it goes. So again, I'm interested in the transition. Mm-hmm. Like, we have a lot of presumptions in this field. And I want to say, like, all right, well, what does the convert, you know, the switch from semi-nomadism to permanent residence look like? Because hmm. I feel like oh, there's just so much we don't understand about this kind of society.
0: Any books you would
1: recommend on the on the
0: topic either of of the Maya or uh, or of
1: the area that, that yeah. you're looking at? Well, I'd recommend uh, Joel Palka's Un- uh, Unconquered Lacandon Maya if you want okay. to understand the general history of this region. He walks in detail through the first contact with the Lacandon and how they got here and who they are as a people and why they're artificially connected to the ancient Maya. Um, one of the the main arguments of that book is that because the Lakandon are so t- closely associated with the rainforest, they sometime, sometimes sometimes as a lost civilization. And you know, he kind of calls out the media for doing this a lot. <sighs> but yeah, they find you know they talk about finding you know quote quote unquote finding a new civilization in a rainforest, and he says like no, that's never been the case. What's always been the case is that you have these societies that were resisting conquest. And always use the rainforest to their advantage, and they "quote unquote" discovered every fifty years or so. <laughs> <laughs> and what you see is a clear image of a society wants to sustain its traditional values, um, but you know they're not totally disengaged either. They're always in regular contact, um, and they're trading, they're borrowing, sort they're, they're trading technology. So you get a more nuanced view of who the Lakandona are. In terms of the pre-classic, um, getting to understand the general, I would recommend. Um, Stratabelli's work in Sivall. I think he has a good you know, good volume on the pre-classic. Oh, and let's not forget Tony Avini's uh, edited volume on <laughs> e-groups. If you really understand, want to understand monumental constructions in the pre-classic, um, Avini's edited volume on e-groups, my e-groups, gives you a good overview of the whole region. All right. So, Is this an area or region that people can travel to? Oh, yes, very much so. Um, I mean, this is kind of why the whole uh, documentary took place in the first place. I mean, they're very excited about the idea of the broader world knowing where Mensabak is. So Noku, again, is just located in the agricultural plots of the Lakanon people. Most of the site that you see in the the documentary – is the place that they're taking people to. So they're actually giving you the canoe ride up to the mountains. They're walking you through some of the temple structures. And they're also really eager to share the wildlife there as well. So there's a whole new uh, you know, collection of cabins and uh, little hotel structures that they built with the hopes that people come to Mensabak and see it. The best way to get there is to uh, go through the city of Palenque, okay. you know, again, right outside of the, the big archaeological complex. And there are tours that will go through Lacanon territory. So they'll go in two places, Naha and mensavac And Mensabok is the location of the video. So you know, if you're a tourist that is interested in you know traveling to this place, make it clear you want to see mensavac All right. What's the process? So where do you fly? You fly into... Ah, so you would fly into either Hermosa, or... Um, there is an airport in Palenque, okay. but I don't think it's... Um, and it's only used for part of the week, so it's very small. But if you're going to Hermosa, uh, either way, there as soon as you get to the city, you'll find multiple tour groups that go into Palenque. And the beautiful thing about that uh, tourist industry is that, yes, you know, the, the, the archaeological site is the big draw there. But there are multiple excursions available uh, from multiple companies all across uh, the city of Palenque. And they want to take you through other archaeological sites that are smaller and less well-known. They want to take you to see the manatees that are in the, the kind of mangrove swamps that are nearby. And Mensa and uh, are also included in there. The thing with Mensa Bach is they're, you know, now that it's better connected through, uh, they've expanded the highway system they expanded the gravel roads to make that travel easier. They're still waiting for that moment where like, all right, when are tourists going to come to check this out? Because what we have here is unique, it's cool. There's no other place like this in Mexico. No other place we could see what archaeological sites look like in their, you know, original condition. But also no other place where you could see crocodiles and, uh, you, know, you know, the toucans just kind of flying through the air and these beautiful lake systems that are just pristine. And the lacandon are very serious about protecting the waterways here. I mean, in terms of sustainability, they don't allow uh, motorboats. Um, you have to visit these sites through a canoe. So that you will be jumping in through a canoe and the lacandon will be guiding you through. And that's just part of the experience. Yeah, it's neat. Yeah, you know, it's beautiful being out there in the lake system and not hearing a sound. No unnatural sounds. And I don't think I've seen, I've only felt that kind of experience very... Uh, Few moments in my life where you could be out in some place and not hear motors or engines or anything. through. Even planes rarely fly through this area. Mm. So you get to feel you know, just the sounds and the smells and the sights here are just completely different and unique. So, is there a story about the necklace? Yes. <laughs> So, the moral of this story is going to be respect the rainforest. Um, and that was some, a mantra that the Lock and Noble repeatedly told not just myself, but everyone who worked on the project as well. You know, the, the, I think the, uh, the documentary really covers how beautiful the rainforest looks. I think I even had to send a thank you letter to the, uh, to the producers and I like, oh, you made it look just the way we, we picture it in our heads. It's just gorgeous. Um, but I think what you don't see on a daily level is just how hard this environment can be for someone who's not used to it. Um, the rainforest is owned by the animals. like They are everywhere. So the snakes, uh, the insects, reptiles, like, they're all there. Even the plants have these kind of defensive mechanisms that you're not ready for. <laughs> <laughs> don't touch that. Exactly, (laughs) because not only don't touch that, it'll go inside of you. It's not just going to sit there passively. Like It'll send its barbs into you, and you're going to have this really uncomfortable rash for many months. True story. (laughs) So, yeah, it almost feels like, yeah, at some point it's like Avatar. Like, oh, gosh, this could be a very harsh environment, again, if you're not used to it. And um, I think the idea is that the, the way – I'm wearing a necklace made out of the vertebrae of a Fertilance, the deadliest snake um, in the Central American region, responsible for the most deaths, uh, wow. more so than any other snake, I think. I don't know if in the world, but at least the Americas. And why? Because it loves rats and mice. And when you're working in an agricultural zone like where Noku is located, this is where the, the, the farm fields are, um, writes, um, um, uh, rats and mice love corn. So they're going to hang out around the crops. And, you know, the fertile ants, they're going to follow the food. So you have these very deadly vipers um, all around the, the, the main research site of Noku. More so than you would have in a primordial forest. Because they're following, again, their, their snacks. So, you know, me being who I am... <laughs> I think it was a particularly hot day when most of Done are kind of clearing a, a good patch of the forest so we could start mapping. Um, but they cleared in a way where they're just cre- clearing only what's necessary. Again, they're very conscious of the environment, so they're only going to remove what's necessary. So you still have a lot of plant life around you. And, um, you know, I have some macheting skills, but an 8-year-old Lakondon boy could easily out-machete me in any day. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> And so, basically, I'm sitting there chopping this bush, uh, you know, just kind of not doing so with very much intent. I was really hot. It was midday. I think it was about 90 degrees, 100% humidity. I'm getting eaten alive by mosquitoes because, you know, again, they control the environment. I'm chopping away at this bush. And then a friend of mine, a and comes in and grabs my arm and says, stop doing that. And what I don't see, because I'm not paying attention, and you know, I'm just kind of chopping almost for fun. Um, is a uh, six foot fertile lance coiled right in the heart of this bush, doing his S curve right about to strike me. Oh man! Oh yeah! <laughs> and, and he shouts, and everyone stops working. And you know he yells. Uh, I think it was Achkan, uh, you know the, the, the Maya word for this particular snake, and everyone freaks out because they see that it's massive and more than uh, has enough, more than enough venom to kill me many times over. So they have to stop working because they feel that like this is a you know, field uh, hazard here, so they have to kill it. And um, the way they have to like, take this down is they would never go at it with a machete because it could definitely strike uh, within four or five feet. So this thing is just designed to bite. And so they have to actually cut down these long logs to uh, kind of nail it in the head to, to knock it out. Oh, wow. And then they'll come in a machete and, and kill it, you know, to kind of put it out with the Is that the snake? This is the snake. Whoa, so they made man. about three or four necklaces out of these for, you know, as a reminder. It was like, this is the one that almost got you. Wow. And, you know, if it, it had bitten you, you would have deserved it because you weren't paying attention. You're just kind of sitting there whacking away. And yeah, that's your lesson there. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. Well, thank you.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. And uh, you've reached question thirteen. So congratulations. Oh, okay. that was <laughs> only
1: thirteen questions. That's it. <laughs>
0: um, i curious about uh, your your filming of the the Disney Plus program Lost Cities, which maybe is mm-hmm. poorly named. Um, Anything that happened behind the scenes or anything that you think is – you mentioned a little bit that was cut out. But I'm curious as to, like, the experience of the filming and, uh, you know, what it was like and and anything that you think got left on the cutting room floor that you wish people knew. Oh,
1: gosh. I think what always makes me laugh is how we just kept having this disconnect of – I was trying to explain the complexity of the pre-classic world. And I think I was starting to frustrate them. They're like, no, no, You're not talking to archaeologists, (laughs) You're talking to a general audience, uh, especially, you know, young people, teenagers, who are going to be invested in telecology for the first, first time. You're trying to get them excited. And they kept telling me to dumb it down. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, you know, I think it's something the director pulls me aside because he sees I'm getting frustrated. It's like, how much more can I simplify this? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like, it's, you know, I keep trying to figure like, Yes, it is beautifully complex. It is complex. Human beings are not easy to study. Um but you know, he kind of walks me through the narrative of how he wants to present the pre classic to a broader audience. And you know, it's like, okay, leave behind all the dates and the details. Like they you know, you're inspiring these people to get into pre classic archaeology. They'll figure that out later. So that was the part where I was like, okay, fine. I know I'm over explaining, but there's you know, there's a lot of information up in this head here. So I'm trying to convey that as simple as possible. There's a lot more to it. Yes, there's always a lot more to it. I think yeah. <laughs> The frustrating answer to an anthropologist says it's complicated, <laughs> <laughs> and they were just like, "No, come on, simplify." Here we go. And then is <laughs> seeing how the final product was edited was kind of very was very interesting. <laughs> the was story. there anything they got wrong? Not wrong, but there's a lot of context mm-hmm. to mixing um, context that I think, yeah, you know, admittedly, would have made the story more convoluted. Sure, yeah, you know, I think there's one point where Albert Lynn's asking me about um, how this compares to Palenque. Mm-hmm. And I give him a very long winded answer, <laughs> and the thing he was looking for is like, well, how much older is this? And that's all he was interested in. <laughs> and you know, and then I give him a more complex answer, convoluted answer. Well, Paulinca is actually also has a pre classic component. They are contemporaries. They're just smaller. It's like, okay, 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 let's start over. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's asking like the you know to tomb, the thing I just saw. Yes. they said 700 BC. How? Yeah, 700 AD. You know, how old, how much older is this compared to Naku? And it's like, oh, about 1,500 years. That's what he was looking for. <laughs> that's what kind of makes it. So, you know, it's not that Noku's 1,500 years older than Palenque. It's 1,500 years older than the Pakal's temple. And it's like, all right, you know, I'm not going to quibble about that kind of news. Yeah, exactly. We're splitting hairs here. <laughs>
0: well, Professor Warris, thank you so much for joining us today. really yes, appreciate it. You. It was a pleasure to be here. All right. Tell your friends and family about the podcast. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, send along an email to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications and Events. Episodes are recorded on campus in Lathrop Hall. Executive producer, Colgate Vice President for Communications and Events, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Dan DeVries. And audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate at colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.